Hello, my name is Gustav Hoyer, and I am a composer. Welcome to the Anachronism Podcast. Thank you for joining the Anachronism Podcast. This is Gustav Hoyer, and I am delighted to welcome as my guest, Elena Specht, who is a uh, composer. And we're going to be talking composer to composer about why we love this form of music, why this genre and these set of musical tools are the right tools for us to express those things that we feel that we need to bring into the world and maybe talk about some of the challenges that we face as composers in the modern time uh, with the saturation of technology, different musical styles and the preferences, at least in our, our home country of the United States, that we're not always necessarily mainstream artists in that sense. And so looking forward to having you as my guest. Thank you, Elena, for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's, it is indeed my pleasure, and I'm excited to share with my audience a bit more about you. And first, I'd love to, for you to just give a brief bio, a brief background on your experience, and then we're going to dive into that, and I'm going to ask some questions about how you found your way on that course. But first, just give us a, a brief overview of how you found yourself to be a composer and your journey to that point. Sure. So um, I am currently a graduate student at Michigan State University. I'm working on a doctorate in composition. Um, and I grew up playing piano first as a child and then French horn. And I took piano lessons and horn lessons and was in band and orchestra in my school. And I started composing in high school when I took a music theory class in my high school and I loved it. Um, so I went to college at uh, Vanderbilt University for composition and I did my master's degree at the University of Colorado in Boulder and now I'm here in Michigan um, composing music. I had a chance to briefly sample some of your works online and we'll come back to some of the work that you've done with orchestra and wind ensemble. Um, but I want to go back a few steps and first probe a little more that I've found with certain musicians and maybe composers as much as anyone that there is a moment somewhere in their childhood or perhaps their early education when they realize that this form of music, not just music in general, music would have an appeal, but that this form of music was somehow irresistible and that maybe it was listening to a special piece or perhaps it was just time working on your instrument, your primary instrument, or a moment of intense emotional experience that was accompanied by music. Was there a time that you can go back in your memory when you really feel you crossed a threshold and you had now entered into this genre of music really irreversibly? Sure, that's a great question. It's hard to pinpoint uh, a, a turning point when I just made a decision that I was going to pursue this. I know that I loved playing in band in high school, but the summer between my sophomore and junior years in high school, I got to do a summer program at, in music at Northwestern. And one of the pieces we played in the band there was Lincolnshire Posey by Percy Granger. And I just remember like my eyes being open to the possibilities when you get really good music and really good players, what this genre could do. And I was just, I remember being so impressed by my peers um, who were playing really hard music on some of the woodwind parts, especially, and just thinking it was so cool um, what this music can do when you get to that next level. So uh, your primary instrument then is? 
It's horn. It's the horn. And mm-hmm. so talking about the horn, I had the chance to speak to a bassoonist, and we had a, a discussion about the peculiarities of the bassoon. And yeah. and I want to talk about the horn, and then I'm going to come back to Lincolnshire Posey. Sure. But, but the horn, you studied from a young age. Was it elementary school, or when did you first touch the horn? Yeah, I started in fifth grade, which in my district was elementary school. I actually um, started on percussion because my band teacher, I told him I wanted to be a percussionist, a flute player, or a horn player, and I couldn't make a sound on a flute or a horn, um, which is natural because they're very hard instruments to start on. So he gave me some drumsticks and said, you can play in percussion, which was fine with me. But um, I learned eventually, I learned on my sister's trombone how to buzz on a brass mouthpiece, which is a little easier since it's bigger. And then I was able to switch over to horn um, in in due time, and that ended up being what I stuck with. So talk a little bit about what it, why is the horn so difficult? What's so hard about making it sound? Yeah. So uh, on any brass instrument, you have to buzz your lips to make a sound. And the smaller the mouthpiece... But usually the higher pitch the instrument, the smaller the mouthpiece, and the smaller the mouthpiece, the harder it is to buzz. So trumpet and horn, horn has the smallest mouthpiece, trumpet also has a small mouthpiece. Once you get down to a tuba, it's really big. And so the first step is being able to buzz on this small mouthpiece, which is actually pretty tiring pretty quickly if you're not used to it. Um, the second thing about horn that makes it stand out from a lot of the other brass instruments is that we play high in the overtone series. So all brass instruments have a similar pattern of fingerings across, we have typically three, sometimes up to five valves, and we have similar fingering patterns, and you play a lot of the same notes, with a lot of different notes with the same fingerings. And on French horn, we typically sit higher in the overtone series, so we play more notes close together with the same fingering. So finding the correct pitch can be really hard because you're just tweaking the shape of your mouth just a little bit to get the right note. I know from horn players that I've talked to, it can be uh, really devilishly difficult to to nail those pitches. So you're sitting with your horn, you're playing in Lincolnshire Posey, which Percy Granger was an Australian composer, Lincolnshire Posey, inspired by British folk music. And uh, for those who listen to this podcast, um, it will put out a link to Percy Granger just for the purposes of this conversation. And you're listening to your colleagues. And you said there's a moment. Was there a particular line where you were you just enchanted by a particular part that really suddenly stuck out to you during a rehearsal? I was like, that's really incredible. The moment where it just really popped. We were working on the third movement of that piece, I think, when we were, um, when I was having that experience, and the tune was the, the tune was really catchy, and it's it's a folk tune, so those are usually pretty memorable tunes. But it's also Granger's adaptation of it, so it's rhythmically quite complex, um, and he has the different woodwind lines kind of doing it each their own version a little bit in their own timing. Um, something, something sort of in a canon, not quite, but, um, just everyone kind of taking their turn on this line. And it was really enchanting. And from that moment you were hooked. Yeah. So you left that concert and you said, all right, world. (laughs) So what was the journey from that moment? So you've done a lot of training, a lot of study. It was more gradual. So that was after that experience that summer is when I started to seriously consider studying music in college. I hadn't really thought of doing that seriously before that point. Um, 
But once I did, I was still in my high school. I, I, I played in band and orchestra, and we, we were a pretty good music program, but um, I also knew that there was repertoire that I would have a chance to get to once I got to college and was around music majors who were really pursuing um, this craft very seriously. So you would have grown up like all of your colleagues, surrounded by music. Everywhere we go in our modern American society, you can't escape music. And the music that we hear ubiquitously around us is popular forms of music, rock or hip-hop or popular genres. Um, of all of the musical expressions, and we live in almost an embarrassment of riches in a time when we can not only hear many styles, we can hear it at our whim. We can click a button, download whatever we want. Of all the styles, what specifically hooked your attention? And, and I'm assuming you've always been musically inclined. You're a musically gifted person, so there was an attraction to music generally. There was something about classical music that made it stand out from other, other options. Sure. I, I should preface this by saying that I do listen to lots of other types of music too. So um, I'm, I enjoy those other genres too, but in terms of my actual practice and composition, it is classical music. And I think that's partly just my performance experience, that this is kind of the music that I've gotten inside of as a player and as putting pen to paper and really seeing how it works. I also really have a love for the instruments that we use in acoustic classical music. I love I love my horn, of course, but I love woodwind and brass instruments. Strings are amazing percussion. And just what the voice can do um, by itself without a microphone, you know, what opera singers can do is really incredible. So I think some of the, the level of skill and the unique sounds and timbres that all of the instruments that I write for have. Probing that a little bit more, and, and I share that sensibility that we, as classically trained, and I always use classical advisedly because if you're trained in the type of music, it's a period. It's a specific set of styles of writing. And people more generically say, oh, it's classical music. It has French horns and strings. But you write modern music by definition. You're alive today. It is definitionally contemporary music. And you've chosen the palette of these acoustic instruments, these organic instruments. Uh, sometimes, and, and I think you've had a unique experience of playing in the midst of them, but there's a lot of folks who don't get that experience because of the state of music education, just their personal journey. Uh, what would you say, if you wanted to use words, and obviously your music does this too, but use words to win people over to the beauties of these instruments as you've described them, what would you say to a new listener? That's a great question, too. I think I would encourage them to try to 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 listen to the... When I say timbre, it's referring to the quality of the sound. So an oboe sounds playing the same note will sound very different than a flute or a clarinet or a viola. And I think that one of the exciting things about the orchestra or wind ensemble and even chamber music is just the different colors that come out of these instruments. And so I would say listen to listen to a piece, and really anything, and try to kind of piece out, can you hear the oboe, can you hear the violin, can you hear the trombone, and really try to get inside those colors, and it'll be really interesting. Something I like to point out that folks who don't play don't realize, but a lot of the instruments, the color, the timbre, as you describe, the personalities of the people who gravitate toward those instruments have their own categories. And you laugh because you know what I'm yes. talking oh, about. Yes. So talk a little bit about that. And particularly the winds have a very pronounced set of 
there's a high differentiation across the winds in a wind ensemble, the way the sounds are made, the colors, all of that. Talk a little bit about the personalities without being too trite and cliche. There are there there are character associated with the instrument, which is it's fun for people who don't know that. So anything you sure. would say to that? Yeah, I think there's a little bit of chicken and the egg here too. Do you do you, does your personality pick the instrument or do you, does your personality develop as you play this instrument since most start as children? I think that we we tend to give different roles to different instruments. So violins are usually quite prominent in the orchestra and you could say maybe in the band flutes and clarinets kind of play a similar role. And so those people kind of get used to playing the main line a lot of the time and other instruments tend to be the accompaniment a little bit more, especially lower pitched instruments. And so there's kind of a sense of what role do you have? Are you usually on the surface or are you like the drums kind of holding everything together rhythmically or are you a bass or a cello or a tuba providing a really steady harmonic back framing? Um, and those things kind of spill over. We get used to our roles and the, the unique sounds we produce at different times. So to pick that up, you have written a concertino for tuba and, That's uh, correct. And Rip Van Winkle, which really charming. I'd love for you to talk about your choice of the tuba. Given what you just said, the tuba's traditional role is not as the celebrity of a piece. So I'd love to hear you talk about that some more. Sure. So that piece um, comes because my husband is a tuba player and he's the performer on that. So naturally, I was going to feature the tuba. But I do like that opportunity, especially knowing him and knowing what the tuba can do. It's great to put it in the spotlight because the tuba is really an agile instrument um, when you have a good player and it can really do a lot and sound really beautiful, but it also can play those really loud low notes that are a lot of fun. So that that was in the piece too. We get really low just, just for fun so we can see what the tuba does, but also really high because it can play surprisingly high. Um, so that that's why the, I chose the tuba, but I think it's great to let people see that there's so much potential with that instrument. Talk about your selection of the complementary instruments, a, a, and again, a concerto or a concertino for folks listening to the podcast. It's it's the juxtaposition of a soloist with a large ensemble, and the piece is written to be the conversation between that individual and, and the crowd and the different ways that dynamic plays out. So in your work, you have the tuba juxtaposed. What are some of the compositional challenges with an instrument? It's, it is a dexterous instrument. It's very agile. It can be a very prominent instrument. What were some of the compositional challenges you faced with that? So one challenge is that we tend to hear higher voices more prominently. So writing a concerto for the violin or flute or another instrument that plays really high, it's usually fairly easy to hear the melody line that this solo is playing. Um, in the case of tuba, you really have to worry about covering up the tuba, not because it can't play loudly, it plays very loudly, but because we just don't hear those low notes quite as easily as we hear the high notes. So I have to think about constantly, how loud is the tuba playing? How fast is it playing? And usually if it's quiet or fast, then I need to have the orchestra back off a little bit or I accompany the tuba with higher notes. Usually we're used to hearing a low accompaniment and a high solo, but I have to kind of flip the script and have maybe violins and flutes and clarinets accompanying the tuba um, so that it can be heard over the orchestra. At times the tuba will blend in and play along with the orchestra to a certain extent, and I think that's okay. That's a normal enough part of a concerto framework, but a lot of times we do want to hear it and I have to consider what everyone else is doing. 
So what compositional techniques beyond the ones you've talked about which have to do with color choices, timbre and the juxtaposition of different register and range, what are some of the other structural ways that you help bring the dynamism or the dialogue, the sense of energy of a concerto that, what are some other things you did in that piece? Sure. So one thing is to kind of alternate the two voices. So um, in this case, I was really thinking very programmatically where uh, Rip Van Winkle, um, this, it's based on a story of it with this particular character. And so the tuba is playing the main character, Rip Van Winkle. And at different times, the orchestra is playing is playing different roles. Often it's community members and people he's interacting with or it's the scenery itself. He goes up in the mountains at one point in the story. So the orchestras, these are, they're playing very real roles. And at times um, there's a section a little past the middle when the tuba will play like two measures of melody and then the orchestra will play a few measures of melody in response and they kind of go back and forth like there are two people having a conversation. And that way you get the full orchestra but you also get the tuba. And you give the tuba player a chance to breathe in between solo passages. Something that sometimes uh, amateur composers who are keyboardists, like I had to learn early on, that when players do actually need to breathe, they can't yeah. play continuous notes. And uh, it's a lesson composers have to learn about the limitations of each instrument and the human limitations that each represent. Um, so uh, it's it's a charming work, and Rip Van Winkle's such a, a fun story. Was the story conceived before the piece, or did you decide, oh, Rip Van Winkle's the perfect vehicle to tell a tuba story? Yeah, I, I love it as an option. But the, the piece was commissioned for a concert where the theme of the concert was, was myths, legends, and tales. So I, I, I think I had some sense of the other pieces on the program, but mainly I thought I'm going to choose an American myth or tale. And I went with, I thought Rip Van Winkle was such a fun story and I thought it would make a good pairing for a tuba. Um, so that's how that ended up being the topic. It really works. The tone of the tuba having this kind of grumbly and, and slumbering sort of tone at times, it, it yes. complements quite well. So moving on to more broadly, and, and we'll touch on some of your other work as we go, uh, but in the time when there is so much of a proliferation of other styles, you can turn on the radio, you can't avoid music actually in modern American life. Why, why is this form worth cultivating. It's one thing to be drawn individually, even to compose. That's our impulse and that that's satisfying our interests. Why is this worth nurturing and what does it give to audiences that they won't find other ways, that other music doesn't satisfy? That's tricky because everyone's tastes are so personal. Um, I think classical music offers um, a scope and scale that a lot of other forms of music don't offer. Um, and a lot of uh, the forces required for a lot of music, it's just amazing how many people have to work together to pull off a, a large piece. I'm going to see tomorrow the Lansing Symphony is playing Mahler's second uh, symphony, which uses a big choir at the end. It's a massive orchestra, big choir, vocal soloist, pieces close to an hour and a half long, and it requires over a hundred people probably to make this thing happen. And so it the human connection that happens when you have such a large group and everyone has an important part, everyone has to do their job. I think that's something really special. Um, 
I also think it's special. Not not all of the music that we in this style is acoustic. A lot is electronic more and more these days. But I think that there's something special about what we can accomplish acoustically on our acoustic instruments or with the voice without any additional um, amplification or anything like that. One of the things that I have reflected on as a composer, as a musician, especially in this genre, is things like the modern piano. We're born into a world where it's got 88 keys, it's got a certain shape, the frame is made of a certain material. French horn, actually, in the addition of valves, is its own that technology has been affecting and shaping musical instruments since the dawn of music. And the evolution of it to be digital and electronic, it's not disconnected from all of that history of innovation. But you did touch on something that I think is it's interesting to me. I'll, I'll put a thought out there and just let you react to it. But the idea that when you're playing your horn, what people are hearing, they're actually hearing your body vibrating, amplified through a long brass tube. When, when your lips or a violinist, when they're drawing the bow, it's, it's hair dragging along strings at a very peculiar rate with enough grab and release and grab and release to set the string vibrating. And the personal touch of a vibrato, it's flesh. So it feels more intimate than if I push a button on a, on a synthesizer and a computer will always produce the exact same sound. And so the human uniqueness that you play your horn, exact same melody, you could sit down and play it five times and it'll be subtly different every time because it's what you are in that moment. What do you think of that? Yeah, that's absolutely true. There's this issue of human reliability and like our limitation, but also at the same time, what we can accomplish when we really dedicate ourselves to these instruments and to the study of this music. Another thing I was I was thinking of just now is that we, um, as composers, a lot of us, including me, but not all composers, tend to write music and hand it to someone else. And we get that chance to really work and ask someone else to bring our music alive. And that happens in all genres of, of music, but I think that that tends to happen a bit more in classical music where we really come to rely on our performers. And our performers are typically not composers and they rely on us to continue to, to get new music into this genre. So it's really this symbiotic relationship that works out really beautifully. Talk about that process. I think you've hit on something that's really central to the composer's life. What we write when we write music, we're writing highly detailed instructions that are dreadfully imperfect. They're, they're good approximations of instructions of what we want other humans to do on our behalf. Talk more about that. I think that's a really interesting point. Yeah, so when I write music, I am often at a keyboard, um, sometimes I'm singing, almost all the time I'm at my computer at some point, since I do most of my notation on software. Um, but ultimately, I rely on other performers most of the time to bring my music to life. And that involves producing scores and parts and trying to communicate why I wrote something, um, what I'm hoping it can be, oftentimes it it involves the performer at the front end where I'm writing for someone or for an ensemble. And I require their help to bring it to life. Our instructions, as you said, are limited. We can only put so much on the page. We really rely on them bringing their artistry and their ideas and interpretation. And that that's part of what makes it such a wonderful process is that I couldn't do it without them. 
Um, and they always make my music better than I could have made it just with the instructions that I write. I, I think that's beautifully said. The satisfaction, a composer, I think I share a similar sentiment when you give a piece of music. You're writing that piece of music not only for an audience and hopefully for them to enjoy the final product, but I think every composer is really acutely aware of the performer is an audience of those notes of that printed page. They're they're receiving, uh, and they're they're almost a customer of that sheet music, and they're going to put all this work in. And I don't know how you how do you make it so that it's it's rewarding for those players. That's that's one of the challenges of composers. You're trying to make an audience happy, but you don't want to lose the players in the journey. You want to bring them into the experience. How, how do you do that? Yeah, definitely. When I'm working um, ahead of time with a certain performer, I usually like to ask them what they like to play, what they feel like they're good at, um, what their strengths are, sometimes what they like to avoid having to play. Um, and I try to write something that's really fun because I know when, when I'm playing, I want to play a part that's fun and that makes me sound good. Um, and so I asked my performers to do that. Performers don't usually like to be told to make bad sounds. I know sometimes composers will say, make a growly sound or use poor tone or something. They want to sound their best usually. So it's good to think about what makes them feel good, what makes them like their sound and what, what the strengths of their instrument and that particular player are. I've had um, a piece I wrote a few years ago for another horn player friend of mine um, who he really likes to play low notes on horn, which can go quite low. Um, and he also asked for uh, fast, uh, uh, triple-tongued, arpeggiated passages, which is not something that's easy to execute. But that's what he wanted to do. And I said, okay, I'll put, I put that in and he played it beautifully. Um, so that just kind of played to his strengths on the horn. The union of human and instrument and then the notes that that composer presents it it is it's a very organic and i think you touched on this how social the classical music genre is it may seem austere from an audience member who sits and sees a hundred people dressed in black and white and it can seem very formal and very remote but what's really happening is it's a hundred individual humans who've had a history like you've had with your horn with their instrument and a composer who's woven instruments for that or notes for that sound so all of this human dynamics going on I'll pivot to a question with with this powerful compelling and and I think we both appreciate it why why aren't audiences coming out more are you seeing in your concerts are you seeing some trends or patterns or some things that you're doing to help invite new audiences who wouldn't be in a place where they would seek this music out. Yeah, I don't, I think that's a, that's a complicated question about whether, I don't know stats on audience, um, audience attendance. I do think that there are, are, are cool ways that we can try to make the concert hall seem less like a stiff, uh, old tradition that, uh, only certain kinds of people like to go to. And some some things I've seen are when people bring the music outside the concert hall, playing the same music, but in a different place. Um, so I know that there's a program called Opera on Tap that some of my friends have been involved in where people sing opera in bars. And that's a really cool experience for them and gets people who don't normally go to a concert hall, but they'll, they'll go to a bar and they'll listen there and they might hear something there. Um, 
other, I've, I know a friend of mine also did a performance at the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C., and that's not also, that's not a concert hall, too, but you can take advantage of a different space and the acoustic effects of a different space in that sense. Um, one of my upcoming projects um, is a piece called Concerto for Audience, and it was commissioned by a friend of mine named James Brinkman, who's a flute player, and he um, has asked me and two other composers to write movements that involve audience participation. So we're, instead of just asking the audience to come and hold still and be quiet and look at the orchestra, we're asking them to make music and make noise with us, um, either rhythm or vocally or um, using whatever they have on them, if they have the keys or purse or phone or something. And um, we, we hope that that's a way to get people more engaged um, since a lot of times just the sitting still and being quiet and you have to listen and focus, but you're not allowed to say anything or react sometimes that can be a limitation. And so this allows audience members to partake in the piece. So that's, a, I, I wanna make a, an observation and then I wanna pivot off of that idea. But one of the eye-opening moments in my own training when I was studying the history of classical music was learning about a concert that Beethoven himself produced. Uh, and it included several iconic works at the Fourth Piano Concerto, I think two symphonies. It was this massive concert that he just produced and by all accounts all the m movements were jumbled up and people were getting up in the middle and, and it was much more like a sporting event almost and the reality of humans being humans that that's not foreign to Beethoven's music or Mozart's music or Bach's music and somewhere and it started with Mendelssohn and the Romantics took it to a fever pitch in the 20th century, really took it far, which basically the best audience is full of cadavers. Don't move. Don't respond. If you enjoy it, keep it to yourself. And I believe that thread of human connection really maybe got lost. And so the things you describe, really interested in how you're going to do that. I'd love to take talk about that and then bridge and talk about other ways in some of your projects, things you have coming up that maybe you're looking to engage new audiences or open up vistas of, of listening for folks who are unfamiliar with the kind of music that you create. Yeah. So with the Concerto for Audience project, um, we want audience, we want audience members to be engaged and, and be doing specific musical tasks, although there's no penalty for doing it right or wrong. Um, but I think that it's worth it's worth considering um, creating artist performance spaces where the audience isn't required to be quiet or sit still. And I think especially if we think about who can actually sit still and be quiet, it's usually adults. But if we want to invite younger generations into this genre, one possibility would be to have more concerts that are inviting for children and not just where they're catered towards children and the pieces are explained or they have a theme a child might be interested in, but let kids be kids, let them move around, let them color, let them maybe get walk up and down aisles. Um, I think I have never done something like this. I think it would be cool to allow kids to actually be on stage with performers to listen up close. What does the cello sound like? What does the clarinet sound like? Not just from the audience, but like sit next to the player and hear their one instrument. So I think, thinking about different types of audience members and what their physical needs are or natural responses would be um, is a great way to go in that direction. And so pivoting from that then, 
you have the project Concerto for Audience, which is very uh, a witty title, a charming title. What other projects do you have? What are things that you want to share with the audience? So um, I have an, I have a number of recordings on my website, but upcoming projects I have. Um, the next thing is a wind ensemble piece of mine, Scenes from Home. It was premiered at Michigan State here in September. And it's going to be performed at Lawrence University in Appleton, Wisconsin in November. And that will be live streamed. So if you can't make it, if you're not from Appleton, which most of you probably aren't, it will there will be a live stream of that piece. And it promises to be a really good concert. Um, and then I have a choir piece, uh, women's choir piece coming up here at, in Michigan State in December. And um, concerto for audience in... February, and I have some chamber pieces that are in the works right now. Well, so to pick up on those projects a little bit, um, some of them are commissioned. Someone will come to you and say, please create a work X, Y, and Z for me for this purpose. Are any of these self-commissioned, if you will, or self-initiated? Sure. Um, some of them are more formal than, uh, formally commissioned than others. So right now I'm about to start a piece for Tuba and Fixed Media, which is for my husband again. Um, so that was just that was more informal. You know, I wanted to try my hand at doing some fixed media stuff and he would like to try playing with it. Um, so that's how that came together. Um, some another one, I wrote a saxophone quartet last summer that's going to be played in the spring. And I approached a saxophone player at Michigan State and said, I would love to write for you and your quartet. And he was on board. So um, some things come together like that. Other things are more are like you said, the conductor or a performer will approach me and ask for a piece. Mm -hmm. So from the moment of request, let's take a commission scenario. Someone asks you to write a piece and the parameters they give you, how do you move from the, that constraining or initiating idea? In what ways does your creativity come out from there? What, what are the ways that you use that as a starting point to really let your own voice be heard? Sure. So I really like the constraining aspect of commissions because the world is wide open until you have some restrictions. Um, and usually the first restriction in that is what ensemble you're writing for, what length of piece it's going to be, sometimes what level of difficulty, since I write also a lot for younger bands, so I'm limited in difficulty. Um, after I've gotten past all the restraints they place on me, I usually place some of my own because um, there's just got to choose some notes and not others. So usually I'll, I'll get some kind of programmatic idea or topic I want to write about. Usually I try to think of something that will relate uh, to me and to the ensemble or to the performer, um, something that we have in common, um, whether that might be a physical space we both live in or a common experience we've had. Um, think something that will connect, make this a very personal piece for me and for the person receiving it, even though other groups can play it later. Um, but that's where it starts. Um, and from there, I start to work out a formal structure and musical ideas that I think will accompany this topic. Sometimes it's a very narrative story, like Rip Van Winkle, where there's kind of a clear start to end. Sometimes it's just a more of a topic or a concept that doesn't really have a particular timeline associated with it. So if you wanted to direct listeners of this podcast to um, a piece that you think most represents your style and your musical sensibilities in, in your repertoire, what would it be? 
Uh, I think I would direct them to my piece scenes from home um, that uh, the Michigan State Wind Ensemble just played, and I, I'm very I'm very happy with that piece. It was they did a great job. Um, in that case, that piece is based on paintings in my house, um, but which is the title scenes from home. But they're places that could not exist inside my house. They're um, nature um, scenes, mountains, and bodies of water, and things like that. Um, so it's kind of a, a little bit of a paradox built in there. Um, and each of those, the music um, is driven by the paintings. Um, so I'm somewhat. That's one of the a way I place a restriction on me is I'm thinking, what does this evoke? for me musically. Um, and all of the images are available on my website with the piece, so you can see it as you listen and kind of contemplate whether you think the, the music and the images go together. Lovely. Well, we'll be happy to share that link. We have show notes and we'd love to share your work with our audience and, and allow them to experience that. Before we close our discussion today, is there any last parting thoughts you would want to leave with people who are starting to explore, discover this genre of music, food for thought? Yeah, I would say that it's full of hidden gems and beautiful pieces, and it's a very much an alive genre of music. So you don't have to listen to Mozart to get into this form of art music. You can listen to uh, young people who are alive and writing today. You can listen to anything written really roughly a 500 year tradition depending on how we define it so there's so much open to you um there's composers of all nationalities um there's a lot of different topics that composers write about so just dig in a little bit and you'll you'll find something for you elena i want to thank you for taking time with me and with my listeners today and really pleased to hear your story i'm excited to share your lovely music with our audience and I wish you lots of listeners and lots of success and lots of future commissions. And I will receive from you, hopefully, some links that we'll be eager to share and help tell your story. And keep us in mind as you have upcoming events that you want to share. Let us know, and we'll be happy to share that with our audience as well. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Take care. If you'd like to connect digitally, you can visit my website at gustavhoyer.com or find me on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining.